from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Hola, and welcome to La Biblioteca, an exploration of the Library of Congress collections that focus on the cultures of Spain, Portugal, Latin America, and the Hispanic community in the United States. I'm Catalina Gomez, a librarian in the Hispanic Reading Room. And I am Talia Guzman Gonzalez, also a librarian in the Hispanic Reading Room. Hola, Catalina. Hola, Talia. This is the last episode from this, our first season, which focused on some of our materials from our Archive of Hispanic Literature on Tape, a collection of audio recordings of poets and writers from the Luso-Hispanic world reading from their works, which has been curated here at the Library of Congress. We truly hope that you have enjoyed our conversations and that you have become more interested and curious about Luso-Hispanic literature and culture through listening to our episodes. Today, we will be discussing our 1977 recording with Colombian Nobel laureate Gabriel Garcia Marquez, or Gabo, as some of us like to call him. We all like to call him El Gabo in Latin America. He's, yes. he's ours. <laughs> so Garcia Marquez was born in Aracataca, Colombia in 1928. He is the author of more than 10 novels and novellas, including Cien Años de Soledad, 100 Years of Solitude from 1967, El Otoño del Patriarca, The Autumn of the Patriarch from 1975, and El Amor en los Tiempos del Cólera, Love in the Time of Cholera from 1985. He has also written volumes of articles, scripts, and numerous short story collections, including Los Funerales de la Mamá Grande, The Big Mama's Funerals from 1962. His work has been widely translated. In 1982, Garcia Marquez was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. Other of his honors include the Best Foreign Book Award in France, the, Romul the Romulo Gallegos Prize, and the Neustadt International Prize for Literature. He began his writing career as a journalist in the, in the 40s, and then he worked for, the newspa for newspapers like El Universal, El Heraldo, El Espectador, and Prensa Latina News Agency. In the 1980s, he became publicly involved in social political issues, participating in international forums and tribunals. He published his memoirs, Vivir para Contarla, Live to Tell the Tale, in 2002. He died in Mexico City in 2014. I believe Gabriel Garcia Marquez was the first author of, these, of the Latin American boom that I read as a young girl, or I must have been, you know, a tween probably. And I was, I remember being at home and they were showing on TV a movie based on one of his short stories, which is La Verdadera Historia de la Candida Herendira y su Abuela Desalmada. Which is a great. It's a great story. It's a fantastic movie. It's, it was an introduction to me uh, to magical realism. And then after watching that, I just wanted to read everything that this man wrote. And it was, it was a good introduction to literature and um, and to Latin America, for sure. Uh, so I'm very excited that we're talking about Gabriel Garcia Marquez today in our last episode for the podcast and to talk about the work of this giant of the Latin American boom, we invited uh, Marie Arana, who is a writer and journalist just like Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Marie Arana is a Peruvian-American author of nonfiction and fiction. She is the senior advisor to the U.S. Librarian of Congress, director of the National Book Festival, the John Kluge Center's chair of the cultures of the countries of the South, and a writer at large for the Washington Post. For many years, uh, Maria Arana was the editor-in-chief of the Washington Post literary section, Book World. 
She has also written for the New York Times, the National Geographic, the International Herald Tribune, El País from Spain, El Comercio from Peru, among many other publications. Her biography of Simón Bolívar won the 2014 Los Angeles Times Book Prize, and her memoir, American Chica, was a finalist for the National Book Award. She has also written two novels, Cellophane and Lima Nights. Let's listen to our interview with Maria Arana. Marie, thank you so much for being here with us. It's a pleasure. What can you tell our listeners about uh, Gabriel García Márquez? Well, of course, as you say, he is uh, not only the world's, uh, one of the world's greatest uh, writers, probably one of the greatest writers of the 20th century, let's say, worldwide. Um, but he also represents um, the heart and the mind of Latin America, which I think is what, what is so extraordinary about him, a combination of a voice and a kind of history that he's able to tell. Uh, perhaps because he was a journalist to begin with, um, he has reality down, the reality about Latin America. And, and then because of his extraordinary imagination, having been uh, fed uh, these wonderful stories by his grandfather when he was growing up, um, he was able to combine reality and a, and a kind of um, dramatic narrative, I think, that is uh, incomparable, really, in, in Latin America and in the world of letters. In the recording that Gabriel Garcia Marquez did for the Archive of Hispanic Literature and Tape, which was done in this same studio where we are right now, um, in 1975, he read an excerpt from El Otoño del Patriarca. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that book and then tell us what section uh, of the novel you chose and why? Yes. Well, it, it, you know, uh, I think uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez was always completely um, sort of obsessed by the story of the Latin American dictator. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was um, Juan Vicente Gomez, I think, who inspired him, the mm -hmm. Venezuelan dictator. Uh, an extraordinary story of somebody who really ruled with an iron fist and had 84 children and, you know, umpteen mistresses and all of that. And he was inspired, I think, to to write something about the Latin American dictator. He had, uh, it was just about at that time, you know, 68, 69, 70, 71, that all of this was happening mm -hmm. in, in Latin America and, and particularly in Venezuela. And he was inspired to, to write this extraordinary story, a very, very hard-fisted story about a Latin American dictatorship. Um, and it's almost a combination of uh, hallucination and history, because you feel that he is telling history, but at the same time, it's um, the the as the whole book is almost like a very long dream, sometimes weaving into nightmare mm -hmm. and out. Do you mm -hmm. think that combination of hallucinatory state and mixed with history and reality? is part of the aesthetic of the magical realism that was, you know, very pervasive in this time and of which Gabriel García Márquez is probably the best example. No mm -hmm. doubt about it. No doubt about it. I think, you know, he it, because he was a journalist, he was if you he has a combination of 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 that voice and that mm -hmm. mythological sort of imagination, but also 
a very sharp eye. Mm -hmm. And his books, especially this book, is filled with, a, with a, uh, uh, observations that are extraordinary. I mean, the, the, the um, visual mm -hmm. images that he conjures up. Um, are, so that combination of his journalistic eye mm -hmm. and his, you know, his very lively imagination, and then his control of the mm -hmm. language, I think mm -hmm. all of that can, comes to bear in this book. So what passage did you choose for us today? Well, I've chosen something that is probably on the more hallucinatory side. Mm -hmm. This is, uh, this is uh, toward the end of um, the novel, uh, The Autumn of the Patriarch. And it's, it, it's remarkable to me that you say that um, uh, Garcia Marquez sat in this room and read this mm -hmm. uh, himself <laughs> yes. all those many years ago, because I will try to do my best, but here we go. That's great. On those twilight nights, he would be awakened by the fright that the dead of the nation were standing up in their tombs and asking him for an accounting of the sea. He felt their scratching on the walls. He heard their unburied voices, the horror of the posthumous looks that spied through keyholes on the trail of his great feet of a dying Saurian in the steaming bog of the last fens of salvation in the shadowy house. He would walk ceaselessly through the cross currents of the tardy trade winds and the false mistrals from the wind machine that Ambassador Eberhardt had given him so that he would not think so much about that bad piece of business with the sea. On the top of the reefs, he saw the solitary life from the rest home for refugee dictators who sleep like sitting oxen while I suffer evil-born bastards. He remembered the farewell snoring of his mother, Bendición Alvarado, in the suburban mansion, her good bird woman sleep in the room lighted by the vigil of the oregano. If he were only her, he sighed, happy, sleeping mother who never let herself be frightened by the plague or let herself be intimidated by love or let herself be scared by death. And on the contrary, he was so wrought up that even the flashes of the lighthouse without a sea coming at intervals through the window seemed to him to have been befouled by the dead. He fled in terror from the fantastic starfly. Pues en aquellas noches de postrimerías, lo despertaba el espanto de que los muertos de la patria se incorporaban en sus tumbas para pedirle cuentas del mar. Sentía los arañazos en los muros, sentía las voces insepultas, el horror de las miradas póstumas que acechaban por las cerraduras, el rastro de sus grandes patas de saurio moribundo en el pantano humeante de las últimas ciénagas de salvación de la casa en tinieblas. Caminaba sin tregua en el crucero de los alicios tardíos y los mistrales falsos de la máquina de vientos que le había regalado el embajador Eberhard para que se notara menos el mal negocio del mar. Veía en la cúspide de los arrecifes la lumbre solitaria de la casa de reposo de los dictadores asilados que duermen como bueyes sentados mientras yo padezco, malparidos. Se acordaba de los ronquidos de adiós de su madre bendición Alvarado en la mansión de los suburbios, su buen dormir de pajarera en el cuarto alumbrado por la vigilia del orégano. Quien fuera ella suspiraba. Madre feliz dormida que nunca se dejó asustar por la peste, ni se dejó intimidar por el amor, ni se dejó acoquinar por la muerte. Y en cambio él estaba tan aturdido que hasta las ráfagas del faro sin mar que intermitían en las ventanas le parecieron sucias de los muertos. Huyó despavorido de la fantástica luciérnaga sideral 
que fumigaba en su órbita de pesadilla giratoria los efluvios temibles del polvo luminoso del tuétano de los muertos. Que lo apaguen, gritó. Lo apagaron. What changes in your experience when you're reading Gabriel García Márquez versus listening to Gabriel García Márquez? I think I had a sound of his voice, you know, for many, many years when I read him and then I listened to him and I'm like, oh, this is how he sounds. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Well, as, as we say, his voice is crisp and mm -hmm. powerful and, and sort of energetic and vital. But the one thing that I remember most uh, when I hear him reading is that he always said, I want to mesmerize my readers. I don't want them to breathe. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you know, there are no paragraphs, there are mm -hmm. no periods, there are, you know, it just goes on and on. And you can hear when he reads it um, exactly what he meant by I will not stop, you will not breathe, you will, you will be so, I will be like the, you know, enchanter, you mm -hmm. will be like the snake, mm -hmm. absolutely stunned by my words. And that's how I feel when I listen to him as mm -hmm. opposed to reading him. That's excellent. Um, I guess this next question t touches a little bit on, on something that we already discussed, but what makes Garcia Marquez so appealing in a universal universal sense when he can also be so Latin American and, and so Colombian? Like I'm from Colombia and we read all his novels when, in high school and it really is something you're supposed to read to understand Colombia. Uh, so what um, about Garcia Marquez um, makes him so universal? Well, a combination of things, I think. You know, he, he had read, he had grown up, and I, I think he had matured um, uh, by the time he was in Barranquilla and he was working as a journalist. He was reading Faulkner, and so he understood that, uh, and Faulkner, if there was anybody, William Faulkner was the one who, uh, who, who wrote about a single place, but with such universal appeal. Uh, and, and such universal kind of grounding. And I think Garcia Marquez quickly recognized that that was something that he wanted to do. He has every bit of the Cervantes in him, in that, you know, he's funny, he can be, he can be whimsical, he can be funny, he can be uh, totally off the wall in, in, in humor, um, but he can also get at that human um, uh, animal that we are. And that's worldwide. You know, our flaws, our our obsessions, our our sort of um, complete uh, 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 slavishness. I think to you know whatever whatever how important we are. There is uh, that we have um, our absurdities. Well, like well, absurdities I mean, we, we yeah, we we're all we're we're all. Um, uh, he gets to a certain um, aspect, I think, of the human animal, which is um, the fact that we are all frail, that we are all um, uh, very vulnerable, yeah. and uh, he can get to that in, in the same way that Faulkner did. Mm -hmm. And that is his appeal, I think. Mm. Great appeal. Even dictators are vulnerable. I mean, that even is, the dictators <laughs> that's, are vulnerable. That's how it's probably yes, the, most, the most vulnerable. Even, I think. even they worry, absolutely, yeah. yes. Because power yeah. can be so, trans, you know, Transitory. I mean, it, it's something that you can hold for a period of time, but you can also. Well, I think the point he makes is that maybe dictators are the most vulnerable, like the most full of contradictions and weaknesses, and, and the most needy, mm -hmm. and oh, yeah, absolutely definitely. the most needy. Mm -hmm. uh, and he understood that about them. Yeah. I'm gonna take advantage that you're here, that we have you sitting here with us, uh, and knowing that you are an expert on another boom writer, Mario Vargas Llosa. Um, mm -hmm. you, uh, we hosted him 
here last year, and we have a podcast about him also in this series. Um, and you were talking about that obsession with the Latin American di dictator, you know, which is also present mm -hmm. in Vargas Llosa's mm -hmm. um, work. But if I am, um, if I'm remembering correctly, I'm thinking of La Fiesta del Chivo specifically, mm -hmm. right? right? I mean, it's the they present this to he presents a different kind of dictator than the one that we see in, in Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I don't know if you can. Yes, um, very, very different mm -hmm. in that Vargas Llosa really, really researched the Feast mm -hmm. of the Goat. And, and in fact, there's a lot of fact, there's a lot of history mm -hmm. in that. I mean, eventually Garcia Marquez, when he wrote uh, the, uh, the general in his labyrinth, mm -hmm. also researched that and sent it to historians mm -hmm. to verify. Um, but in, in in the autumn of the patriarch is very very different from *Feast mm -hmm. of the Goat* in that he's you know it's a much more fanciful book. Uh, Vargas Llosa was uh, com completely uh, hewing mm -hmm. to the facts of Trujillo mm -hmm. and and that dictatorship. Um, they have so much in common. The two you know the it, it, incredible really um, that the Latin American boom mm -hmm. happened when it did because mm -hmm. it lifted these authors. It was, it was um, uh, Vargas Llosa and, and Garcia Marquez and uh, to some extent um, uh, uh, Cortázar mm -hmm. and these, these people were lifted by a Latin American boom and so they were, they're, they're all uh, comparable in a way because they lived at the same time. The obsessions mm -hmm. are the same. Mm -hmm. uh, we are, as Latin Americans, I think defined so much by history mm -hmm. and, and, and history is the dictator, the strong arm, <laughs> the, the tendency to, to just, you know, to be authoritarian mm -hmm. uh, and they got it. You're also uh, a writer, right? You yes. have a biography of Simon Bolivar. Yes. And you have um, novels. A novel. As well. So, would you say that this is true also for contemporary writers for yourself? I mean, this absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. I think there is some key. In fact, the, the the history that I'm trying to write now and trying to write about the Latin American character uh, was something that that uh, Garcia Marquez certainly understood. Vargas Llosa understands. Um, is that there are some key aspects to who we are. Mm -hmm. and, and they're very, very different from uh, the North American variety, which mm -hmm. had a, a completely different culture, completely different history. Um, and I, the, the colonial past, mm -hmm. the indigenous past, all of that defines us in very different ways. Mm -hmm. And um, it's something I think that we're in understanding more and more in our literature as well as in our history. Excellent. Thank you. What can you say, Marie, about... Um, so the concept or the, the, the literary genre, if we want to call it that way, of magical realism, I have a feeling sometimes that it's a little bit mis misunderstood, that it is equated immediately with just imagination, with something that's not real. Mm -hmm. And I always like to make the case that it's very much based in reality. And also, if you are from Latin America, sometimes a lot of these things that sound absurd and insane, that's how they are. And like, the colonial reality reality has sort of give, given birth to a society that sometimes these things are not like so um, you know outside of reality. Right. So Absolutely. I don't know. Can you say something about that? About really what magical realism is, and 
in, in that Latin American terms, yes. how does that play out? Yes, uh, absolutely, Catalina, you're so right. In, in fact, um, I have always been a little miffed by the term magical realism because people assume that it's a literary device. Mm. It's not a literary device. I think, you know, uh, and, and a lot of literary critics, especially in, in this country, I think it's more understood in Europe, um, uh, you sort of dismiss all of this as a, a kind of literary device that people jump into, um, you know, crazy scenes and, you know, that are, in, that are impossible. Well, um, in fact, I think it was the Mexican philosopher Juan Vasconcelos who said, um, you know, we, we are raised in and have been raised through our, our, our culture to see the most extraordinary things, that, to, to be, uh, that challenge uh, reality and that challenge the imagination and we have mm -hmm. seen it we have seen heads rolling mm -hmm. uh, down you know the campos we have seen uh, blood trickle down the streets we have seen all of these things these are not invented we have seen we have been told uh, by our, our our sort of superstitious and and religious background too that we fly into the sky like you know angels the the, the whole combination of of spirituality not only in the in the Catholic sense, but in the indigenous sense, um, and the and the actual the the horribleness of what uh, because there's nothing that has been more violent than Latin American history, starting back in you know starting with 1400 and before that really in the in the, in the uh, pre-Columbian times. So um, magical realism, if it is anything, it is a, a kind of um, understanding a metaphor for what uh, is actually very, very real. It's uh, the it's the real with a twist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much. Okay, so I think um, to close, uh, what is your favorite Garcia Marquez work, and what can you recommend to our listeners? You know, the, one of my favorites is, is one that's not known so well. It's uh, Of Love and Other Demons. Mm -hmm. And the reason I, I love it so much is because it, he begins uh, the book as a journalist. And it's sort of, and it's, it, it's um, uh, trying to track down something that's absolutely um, crazy, wild love affair that goes awry. And, you know, everything... Um, that is, no reporter would be chasing, you know, a kind of love affair. But the fact that he, he does, uh, and he does it in a very, it's almost a novella, really. It's not really, uh, uh, it's a very short novel, probably less than 200 pages. But I recommend it to readers if they're starting out with Garcia Marquez. Um, start with that, because that's a very accessible, wonderful, imaginative, and yet... Um, um, essentially Garcia Marquez in every way. Excellent. Well, Marie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank, thank you for you. having me. It's <laughs> really a pleasure. That was a very insightful conversation with Marie. Uh, something remarkable about this recording with Gabriel Garcia Marquez is that in his introduction to the reading, he mentions that the actual date of the reading of the recording was September 7th, 1977, the day that the Torrijos-Carter Treaty was signed. And he says so, right, in the recording. Yeah, he does. This was the treaties that guaranteed that, the Panama, uh, that Panama would gain control of the Panama Canal in 1999, ending the control that the United States exercised over the canal. 
And it's, it is it is those little details, right? Those historical comment, those commentaries about history, about life, about culture, that show up in these recordings uh, that are part of the archive of Hispanic literature on tape that make this collection so special and so fascinating. And it adds another dimension, one more layer to a project like this one. You have to listen to the recordings, not only for the readings that the authors do, but those comments that are said spontaneously at the moment, you know, in el calor de la hora, those, those are wonderful moments yeah. in the recordings. I couldn't agree more with you. And I also love that Marie touches on another very important aspect of Garcia Marquez's work, which is his strong relationship to the crónica and to journalism. Very few writers have had such an intimate and creative relationship with reality, I think. But it's also important to, to mention that Colombia is a country where fiction and journalism have had a very symbiotic relationship. And this have impacted young readers as well, as you're going to tell us about. Oh, yeah. That funny story about your brother. <laughs> so I was earlier telling Talia this, mm -hmm. this, this really charming story that actually involves one of Garcia Marquez's nonfiction works, Relato de un Náufrago, the story of a shipwrecked sailor, and my oldest brother. Um, we grew up in Bogota, Colombia, and as Colombian students, you know, in middle school and high school, we're supposed to read pretty much all of Garcia Marquez's work. Of course. Uh, which is obviously wonderful, uh, as Celia just explained earlier, wonderful introduction to literature. And my brother's seventh, in, in my brother's seventh grade class, they were reading Relato de un Naufrago, uh, which is a true story of a, a sailor who, you know. Shipwrecked. Shipwrecked, <laughs> you know, and it's a really, really gripping story. Um, and my brother, who is a very, was a very determined young man, <laughs> uh, he, when he found out that this was a true story, he became obsessed with finding <laughs> the actual sailor. His name was uh, Luis Alejandro Velasco. And um, Felipe, my oldest brother, uh, took the Yellow Pages, the book, the Yellow Pages book, and uh, started calling all of the Luis Alejandro Velascos <laughs> that lived in Bogota. And he was really just determined. Um, so anyway, it was just really uh, incredible. He ends up fighting, finding the real man, and he, my brother invites him to come to his seventh grade class to, to speak to all the students. At first, the teacher, of, co of course, thought he was crazy. She's like, of course you didn't find him. What? You didn't find him. <laughs> and when she found out that it was, it was real, she <laughs> was... He was, he was so excited, and obviously she opened the event to, like, you know, all middle school and high school students, and it was just a very unforgettable uh, moment. That's a wonderful story, and, <laughs> and it, shows, it shows the power of literature, right? How literature opens a window into the world, and it takes us to, you know, other places, and it makes us want to know more about the world, about people, and, you know, have an impact in others. And it shows lives. how literature kind of impact young you know young mm -hmm. audiences as well you yes know, he was just so taken by by that story that's that's fantastic well this concludes our episode and our season thank you so much for listening to all of you this has been a great opportunity getting to talk with my colleague Catalina and yes. working on all this process of recording writing scripts inviting people um, and then editing <laughs> uh, we have met and spoken with wonderful, wonderful collaborators. Um, and also we have to thank um, our boss, Georgette Dorn, not only for allowing us the time to do this um, uh, as part of our job, but also for being the person at the forefront of the archive of Hispanic literature on tape for so many years. And also we cannot 
leave without saying thank you to Mike Turpin, who has been behind the booth recording all of this very patiently uh, and never complaining about all our takes. So thank you so much, Mike, for doing this with us. And we hope you enjoyed the first season. Write to us. Let us know what you like. What can we do in the future? And we hope to see you again in La Biblioteca. Thank you for tuning in. To listen to some of the recordings from the Archive of Hispanic Literature on tape, go to www.loc.gov. You can find the project by clicking on our Digital Collections link on the homepage and selecting the Audio Recordings Collections category. You can also find it by going to the library's Hispanic Divisions website, which is www.loc.gov slash rr slash Hispanic. Hasta pronto! This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.